0: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
1: Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown?
2: Do it! One, two, three, four!
0: After a 10-year hiatus,
1: Slater-Kinney is back and as good as ever. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Original Riot Girls, Carrie Brownstein, Corin Tucker, and Janet Weiss join us in the studio for a performance and chat about the past, present, and future of the band. Then we review the new album from another Pacific Northwest giant, Death Cab for Cutie. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions,
0: and Jim, as I look at this show, I realize we've got a Pacific Northwest theme going here. Yeah. You know, it's dark and foggy outside. We've got the coffee pump in here. Got some salmon for breakfast. There you go. And then we've got two bands that have really put the Pacific Northwest on the map, in addition to many others. But uh, today, Slater Kinney and Death Cab for Cutie, two bands that got their
1: starts in the 90s and still going strong today. That's later in the show, but first we have some music news.
2: Did you write the...
0: That, of course, is Don McLean with American Pie, one of those songs, Jim. I remember still parsing that song in an English class in the 70s. My English teacher was very enamored with those six verses spread over eight and a half minutes. That song has been so widely discussed that I think it explains why an anonymous bidder spent $1.2 million for the song's original manuscript at a Christie's auction in New York recently. Well, well, Um, it was
1: 16 pages long.
0: 16 pages, and apparently what's in those 16 pages is McLean's work process as he was going through the song, the way he wrote those lyrics and what possibly inspired them, because he's been very cryptic for McLean. He has been very upfront about the fact that the song begins or was inspired by the events of 1959 when Buddy Holly's plane went down. That's the day the music died. Buddy Holly died, Richie Valens, the big bopper. So there's been a lot of speculation about what the song's about. But there's all sorts of questions, right? Who's the jester that sang for the king and queen? Was it Dylan? Who were the king and queen? Was it Pete Seeger and Joan Baez? Some people JFK, say it. Jackie. J- right, exactly. So to me, the great mystery, Jim, has always been who's the father, son, and Holy Ghost that are mentioned in the last verse. I mean, some people have said it's Janice Hendrix and Jim Morrison who died around that time popular theories that he's talking about buddy holly richie valence and big bopper again
1: bringing the song full circle i mean who would you say it would be i think it's the members of rush (laughs) i like that one uh, if you're disappointed that you didn't get to buy Don McLean's lyrics, you can still bid on a piece of rock history. Greg, on May 16th, the estate of Davy Jones, the singer of the Monkees who died in 2012 of a heart attack, he was 66, they're going to be auctioning off some of his collection. You know, there's the usual stuff, the gold and the platinum records, but then there's some really interesting things. One of those red and white striped coats, you know, that they would occasionally wear in some of the set pieces where they'd be singing. my. Favorite favorite thing, though? There's guitars, there's amplifiers, and there's a tambourine. Because after Linda McCartney of <laughs> Wings, I contend David Jones is the most famous tambourine in rock history. But let's uh, go back to the Don McLean American Pie story and throw it out to the listeners. What do you think McLean's song is about? And what other lyrics have you been parsing for years now without quite figuring out? Give us a call on the Sound Opinions hotline 888-859-1800. you are listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Fangless, a new tune by our guest this week, Slater Kinney. The Olympia Washington Band was one of a few Riot Grrrl groups from the region to get worldwide attention. We're talking about bands like Heavens to Betsy, Excuse 17, and Bikini Kill that helped galvanize feminist rockers and fans in the 90s. Slater-Kinney, whose name comes from the road off Interstate 5 in Lacey, Washington, was formed in 1994 by Corin Tucker, who'd been in Heavens to Betsy, and Carrie Brownstein, who was in Excuse 17. With a series of drummers, they made several critically acclaimed albums and grew a large and devoted fan base. Cot, you were originally the uh, fan club president, I do believe. <laughs> Then they decided to go on indefinite hiatus. Suddenly, that came out of the blue after the release of The Woods in 2005. Greg, I know you shed a tear or two when you heard that. Jim, I don't know if devastated quite
0: does it, but I was was pretty upset when they broke up. I thought they were a band at their very peak, and I was surprised that they broke up at that time. But now they're back. Carrie, Korn, and Janet Weiss, who's been Slater Kinney's drummer since 1996, have released their new album, No Cities to Love, to a lot of anticipation. Now, one of the reasons I didn't think they would get back together again is that in the interim, Carrie went on to be one half of that comedy duo behind Portlandia with Fred Armisen, which was hugely successful. And she also played in that great band Wild Flag with Janet Weiss. Now, the three members of Slater-Kinney stopped by the studios for a career-spanning interview recently. Jim, you weren't able to be there, but I started the conversation by taking them back to the beginning. Here, Corin Tucker explains why she decided to form a band with Carrie Brownstein.
3: Well, I was really a fan of Carrie's guitar playing and um I just thought it would be fun to write with her because she was such a wicked guitar player. So, we just tried it, you know, as as like an idea or a project and it just seemed to have kind of an instant chemistry.
0: Carrie, did it did it click right away for you that did you see some long-term potential in what you were doing with Korn at that point?
4: I mean, I think at the time we weren't thinking about long-term potential. I think in the moment it felt very exciting. We'd been fans of each other's playing. I was a huge fan of Corin singing. I really wanted to be in a band with Corin from the first time I uh saw Heaven Betsy play.
0: Mm-hmm. When you talk about uh, hearing Corin's voice, what was it about it that uh, was speaking to you?
4: I think it had it didn't ask for anything. It just told and it was <laughs> unapologetic. It was scary and it said more in a, you know a single note or a series of notes than you know most people you know need a whole song to say what corn can say really really briefly <laughs>
0: context here too the riot girl scene olympia was a big hotbed of that i mean you had lots of groups around in that scene corn put it in context for us where do you where do you see what you and carrie were doing in the early days of slater kinney in the context of riot girl
3: well i think that we were just part of this really incredibly community oriented scene that was really um almost matriarchal in Olympia like there there really were so many women who had access to putting out records putting on shows organizing their own tours everyone was doing it so to get into that scene it was an excellent opportunity to be like i'm going to do it too you know and it just provided this this incredible context for our band just immediately you know start doing what we wanted to do and be able to immediately start putting out records. I think that was you know, when you think about that in terms of the you know, larger context of the music industry, it was completely unique. Oh!
0: Yeah, it seemed to me too extra musical, which was great. But, you know, I definitely sensed, you know, I was working and I still do work for the Chicago Tribune. It was very difficult to do media at all with these bands. We were interested in writing about them, but there was often like, hey, we don't want anything to do with any of you (laughs) people. It was kind of like, just get away. We're doing our own thing here. Leave us alone. How did you see it, Corn? I mean, where, where did you see it fitting in from that standpoint of there was a certain amount of circling the wagons going on there and you know justifiably so i would imagine you know but where did you see it from that standpoint
3: well i think that before slater kinney ever became a band you know the real riot girl movement had really tried to speak out about a lot of different feminist issues and we had already had some just intensely negative experiences with mainstream media and So we we just felt like there was like this incredible scrutiny of what we were trying to do that did feel a bit exploitative. And so, you know, that kind of explains the kind of reaction of the people who were involved with the movement of saying like, wait a minute, you know, we're not even ready to deal with mainstream media. And the whole point of it was to be able to get out our own thoughts and our own words.
0: vocabulary that you and Korn have together as guitar players is pretty fascinating. It reminds me a little bit of that uh, old Keith Richards quote about the ancient art of weaving. you know there's no kind of lead rhythm roles. it's kind of very tangled up. Was that there from the start? Were you talking to each other with your guitars that way from the start?
4: I think so. I think in some ways we learned how to play guitar in relation to one another even though we had been playing beforehand in terms of what you hear. Now, on a Slater Kinney record or even on the earlier records, you know, it's this kind of partial, you know, chord formations that don't make a lot of sense until the other person's playing um, their part. And it is very interwoven and it is a kind of specific vernacular. And it's just, there's kind of like a sourness to it sometimes. Um, We we detune to C sharp. So even when we're trying to do something catchy, you know, there's still, like, sort of a lump in the back of the throat of the song.
0: <laughs> right, right, which is great. And people remarked on this early on. It was, like, probably the oldest question you guys heard. Well, there's no bass player in the band, you know. But it seemed like almost the the, the way you two played guitar together made that superfluous corn. Um It seemed like, hey, we just don't have space for it in the mix.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I almost think having another person would have distracted from what we were doing in a way because we were taking up all the space that we could um, with the two guitars.
0: We're going to return and get back on this point here. We'll bring Janet Weiss into the conversation, but we're going to hear a song first. Uh, What are you guys going to play for us?
3: This song is called Price Tag, and it's the first song off our record, No Cities to Love. (laughs) ¶¶
0: Price tag from Slater Kinney, Carrie Brownstein, Corin Tucker, Janet Weiss, Katie Harkin. We have to talk about that song. First song on your first record in almost a decade. I mean, you know you got to come out of the box with something good, right? Why is that song at the top? It's obviously a terrific song, but there had to be some jostling about what's going to be in that first position. Why did you pick that song, Corin?
3: I think that it kind of embodied who we want to be as a band today, you know, which is just all of the musicianship and everything that we do, but also all of our values and just everything is just completely on the table at that point, you know, like we're all in, we're screaming about what we care about. (laughs) Everyone's just playing their heart out. And I think that's, we just, if we wanted to come back into being, it's like we wanted to resurrect the band. We wanted to do it just all in, right away.
1: We'll have more of Greg's conversation with the members of Slater Kinney in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we'll review the latest from Death Cab for Cutie, whose leader, Ben Gibbert, is weathering some changes in his life. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and our guest this week is Slater Kinney. Gary Brownstein, Corin Tucker, and Janet Weiss joined Greg in the studio to talk about this pioneering band's origin and the evolution of its sound. Greg, I know you'd agree. I say this not just because I'm a drummer, but one of the catalysts toward making Slater Kinney so influential was the addition of Janet Weiss on drums. We'd heard her before in Quasi and after in Wild Flag, along with Carrie Brownstein. As we return to the conversation, here's Janet talking about what made her want to join Carrie and Corin.
5: I think uh, from the first time I saw them, it was the uh, not only the immediacy and the propulsion and the and the aggression that I really related to, but it was. How their music felt very meaningful, and I wanted to play music that held meaning to me and to people who heard it. I, I wanted to pursue this as like a way to communicate with people things that I cared about and um, to hold a place in their lives that uh, made a difference to them and This was a band that from the first note, conveyed that in spades and so I I mean, I think at the first show, I said to myself, yeah, I, you know, I could be in this band. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, funnily enough, it, it came true.
0: Corinne, what was it about Janet that you had the spinal tap thing going with the drummers there for a while? And, and, and Janet's the one who stuck around. What was it about Janet that was different than, than everybody else?
3: She just brought it so much harder. I mean, the minute she sat down behind that drum kit, she was so powerful. She was so talented, and she had learned all of our material the first day that we rehearsed with her. She had learned everything, and she was just ready to go. She was just brought you know such an intensity to our band, you know that it, it just made it made us into a rock band at that mm-hmm. point. <laughs>
0: You'll carry that Dig Me Out record. you looking back on it and you guys had reissued a lot of your material before this reunion was official. But I would imagine you went back and listened to some of this material at that point. How, how does Dig Me Out hold up for you in, in terms of where you were? Did you feel it like it was a turning point for the band in some ways?
4: Yeah, I mean it, it was a clear turning point. We were on tour with Dig Me Out in the middle of the country, probably Nebraska or Kansas and we stopped for gas and went in and our roadie came out with um, Time magazine and there was a review of Dig Me Out and it was very surreal like things were just happening concomitant to us being on the road but there was also this kind of disproportionate sense of like that this record was catching on we were still kind of doing the same thing but we could start feeling this energy at the shows and that you know it definitely felt like we had tapped into something or that we had kind of created a space that other people wanted to tap into, I'm not sure which is which, but it definitely felt just like this collective push for agitation, togetherness, like forcefulness, and yeah, it was just this, it felt like a, a real wave. I think the album still holds up quite a bit. We, we play um, a lot from it on this tour, mm-hmm. and we only really picked songs that still felt meaningful to us, and there's definitely a handful on that record.
0: And you mentioned earlier about coming out of riot girl and you know there was a certain amount of insularity there now you're in the these big media whether you wanted to be there or not they were paying attention to your band did it change the dynamic within the way you guys wrote songs the way you approached each other the way you approached your audience because i could imagine i know that when certain bands get put in a particular scene early on there's fans who want to hold on to that and they feel betrayed when the band grows beyond that. How was it for for Slater Kenny at what I could imagine must have been a really exciting period for the band?
3: Yeah, I mean it was it was confusing because all you like all those things you described happened at once. You know, we had this kind of dream come true of becoming popular enough where we could imagine ourselves even making a living at what we were doing. And, you know, at the same time you know, some people immediately called us sellouts. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. and I just think that we always, the three of us had kind of a bigger picture in mind of being able to maybe open some doors with our music, you know, for other people that were like us, other women who wanted to imagine themselves doing something that maybe people hadn't seen before. I think we always had this larger goal in mind of of reaching more people, you know, by doing larger press pieces or or having larger audiences. Mm-hmm.
0: And what about playing in front of those larger crowds? There's a whole different dynamic that goes on. Was it daunting for you guys at first to, like, you know, graduate from playing to 200, 300 people who were deeply invested in you to bigger rooms where people were curious because they read about you in Time magazine?
3: Well, I think that, you know, we learned to deal with that kind of pressure in a lot of different ways over the years. I mean, uh, we—I mean at some points we dealt with hostility and frustration from different crowds, you know, opening, opening for maybe even a larger band that wasn't our crowd. We always would try and work around that to, to get people's attention, to get people to notice us, to get people to, to see us as something different than maybe they would judge us at first glance. And so we did that with our music over and over again.
2: You come knocking on my door I oh, get.
0: Well, it was extremely successful in a standpoint just from a musical standpoint. And Janet, I want to ask you about this because Carrie and corn are sort of associated with the songs because they sing them. But I know you have a big role in them too. And in terms of the variety of material, you know, I was, I was going through the records the other night and I was thinking, you know, a song like Step Aside was a really cool soul song. There was like a blues, what was it, Light Raid Coyote, you know, a, a great blues. And then this 11 minute track on, you know, the 2005 record, Let's Call It Love. Kind of a pop thing going on in uh, Leave Me Behind. I mean, all this variety of music, very eclectic. Jumping into the band and, you know, I, I hesitate to say, You were responsible for the variety alone, obviously it was a whole band, but it seemed like there was a big leap in the stylistic range of the material during that period of time, and how how did you sort of fit into that?
5: I think it's just a reflection of our tastes as music listeners. I think we grew up listening to radio that was very diverse. Um, You know, me in the 70s, them in the 80s, like a you know, you would hear Bob Dylan's Sly and the Family Stone, you know, right back to back. There were just, I was exposed to so many different styles that I loved. And I think that just worked its way into my playing. Sometimes on the way to practice, I hear a song and I want to, let's goof around with a style (laughs) like that. You know, I mean, um, I think step aside, I, I had thought about Land of a Thousand Dances and, you know, just the break in that song i think is so fantastic and ideas like that to just sort of spur on creativity for us i think it works that way for all of us um you know hearing a uh, whole lot of love on the way to practice and thinking like wow you, we could have a section where it's just a crazy guitar for you know three minutes four minutes mm-hmm. like just hearing something on the radio i think that takes a lot of chances was exciting to me and uh made me feel like you don't have to stay within a particular box to reach people, and I think that is ultimately our goal, is to reach people and um, share our music with them. So I think sort of exploring these different styles is is really uh, pushes us and is challenging for us and fun.
0: So, Janet, to follow up on that, it seems like would the songs go through different permutations?
5: They can, yes. On this, this most recent record, the songs took a little bit longer to complete. I think we we realized we needed to put together a very strong and we wanted it to be a very concise group of songs. So we really went through and cut all the fat and edited down the songs to their most pure and clean forms. Uh, We wanted them to be sort of daunting and immediate. So in that case, you know, sometimes a chorus would change four or five times. You know, and not that the earlier permutations weren't good. They just weren't right. Mm-hmm. I think we're all very interested in exploring different possibilities until we find the the right combination of things, because it's it is very intricate. And like you mentioned, this weaving thing, it's like sometimes it takes me a while to find my place in those guitar parts. <laughs> You know, or to express what I what I want to say in like a very you know certain specific amount of space. Mm-hmm. So some things take quite a while. Some things are 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 quicker. This this record was a little bit more of a, you know, really honing down the songs and spending the time we needed to make sure they were good enough.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here with Slater Kinney, and we're gonna hear another song. What do we got lined up?
3: This one is called No Cities to Love, and it's the title track from our new record.
2: There are no cities No cities to love There are no cities No cities to love It's not
0: No Cities to Love from Slater, Kinney, Carrie, Corin, Janet, and Katie on that track. Wow, that's the title track from the new album, and uh, we want to talk about that. But the road to this new record started in 2006, really. I mean, I I still have the press release there. It wasn't even a press release. I think it was on your website. Last line of which, after 11 years, seven albums together. Uh, As of now, there are no plans for future tours or recordings, and you could hear the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. What was the finality of it, Carrie? How did you feel at that point? Did you really see a a point where this would ever, you know, there would be another set of shows and albums with Slater-Kinney?
4: I do think that we chose the word hiatus very purposefully. I don't think that we saw it with a sense of finality. We went out, we thought it at at a good time, I think a lot of bands don't end necessarily when they should. They keep going. And the woods had been such a game changer for us. You know, we really surprised the audience. We surprised ourselves. We brought in so many new fans. And it it was kind of like putting the brakes on in the middle of something very momentous. But I think because we didn't sort of fizzle out, it was easier to start back up again.
0: I read some interviews you gave a, a year or so ago where you kind of put the blame on yourself in some ways. You were kind of the one were saying, you know, I I had some health issues at the point at that point and I didn't feel like I could keep going.
4: Yeah, I I think tour was just really stressful for me. My body was like rejecting it constantly. I was always getting like psychosomatic, hypochondriacal kinds of things on the road. I felt like I was like touring emergency rooms. <laughs> um, I've seen so many, yeah. you know, because I was just like, oh my god, I have hives, I have to go to the hospital, or mm-hmm. having a panic attack, and yeah, I mean, it's my body was just basically like you're done.
0: Corinne, you were you ready for for the band to break up, or, or or how did you how did you feel at in 2006 when when it happened?
3: I mean, we talked about it for a while before we came to that decision. You know, it was it was a group decision where we all discussed it and. Felt we really felt like it was the right thing to do. It wasn't easy, but you know, it was like we really need to take a break. And you know, I I definitely wanted to have another child and really needed to be completely off the road. So, you know, there was there was more than one thing going on at the time, and uh, and I think that it was the right thing for us to do. You know, to take the hiatus.
0: Mm-hmm. So all three of you got involved in some very interesting projects. Janet played in. 300 bands. Corn. you had The Family, you released a couple solo records. Carrie, you were doing some work uh, as a writer. And then, uh, and then this Portlandia thing happened uh, as part of this whole equation. You were also in Wild Flag, which we, a record which we loved. But, so, Corn, you're, you're the band member that has known Carrie the longest. Did you see a Portlandia in her future?
3: Yes. <laughs> I mean, people ask me that question and they ask if she was funny, and she was always cracking me up. From day one. She she had some silly joke that she was doing. She had all these funny voices that she would do. <laughs> so, you know, I know that she always loved comedy and she was really funny.
0: Janet, how about you? Your perspective on it? Because I think Slater Kinney had a reputation as a, being a very serious, intense band.
5: I think that's often the case with the most serious musicians. Uh, they're often very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played with Elliot Smith as well, who was hilarious and oh, wow. always making us laugh.
0: Now you're blowing my mind. And
5: people thought, oh, he's like, you know, such a downer and we would have to disagree. But I think mm-hmm. I think Carrie has, uh, the way she observes the world is is very unique. And the way she can write and comment on the world, obviously, in her music is, is very vital and interesting and always... Take, kind of takes you by surprise, and I think that sort of taking you by surprise is um, part of what Portlandia does. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of knocks you off your seat and makes you feel, you know, sort of weird and uncomfortable.
2: What, where's
4: the where's your air conditioning unit, sir? I don't think that you're allowed to come into this store and talk about units every time you say the word unit or box or equipment i feel a penis here i feel a penis here i feel a penis here i am halfway to pregnant we'll call this from now on an air conditioner or chill machine or a Where, chill unit okay, we can call, it a, you know, we unit. call it a chill unit we will, Did I say unit? I'm we will so strike sorry. the word unit from this I'm, conversation i it entered into my
2: subcon- I'm so sorry <laughs> and i
5: think that that's how our music is in a way and it just sort of uh, translates into Portlandia as well. Mm-hmm. I see a, a lot of her as a musician in in the show.
0: So Carrie, multiple streams of art going on here. Do you see any of what Portlandia, what you're doing in Portlandia or the creative energies that you're putting into Portlandia crossing over into the way you are writing songs or approaching guitar now in Slater-Kinney?
4: Mm, not really. I mean, except for what jana's talking about in, in that kind of like, observational tool that I like to keep sharp. Um, And I I guess from a collaborative perspective, I I have learned a lot from Fred and from being in a writer's room. And um, when you're pitching ideas, you can't really be precious about them. You, You have a limited amount of time. And I think that we kind of applied some of that in the writing on this record, just being like less, you know, sort of like married to our ideas and like willing to sort of See someone else's, else's opinion or have them just be like, this is not the best idea. And so, in terms of like the logistics and the methodology, I think that applies, but not in terms of there's nothing really jokey about my playing, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I wouldn't say joke is the word we would use to, to apply to that. All right, new album. And I know, Janet, you were somewhat outspoken in some interviews about there's no way I'm going to do this unless it's absolutely right like the standards had already been set. And I know that all of you are students of music history and know that nine times out of ten, whatever you want to call it, reunion, reincarnation, resurrection, nine times out of ten, those things don't go well, especially with new material on the the block to be compared to the previous material that you guys had done. You guys, as you mentioned, uh, The Woods was an extraordinary record in 2005. So, Janet, what was your feeling about we're putting the band back together again, man.
5: Well, that's exactly what Korn said to me in that voice. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> hey, man. Um, I mean, I think the f- initial concern was just to make sure we had enough time, we could make enough space for it to to be good enough. I think we all realized we were going to be under the microscope on this one. And I think we not only compare our music to our previous albums, but to all music. I think it's... We want our record to stand up with all the great albums. Uh, I think we're striving for making songs that are going to stick around for a while. And so I think we just pushed and pushed and pushed on this and really tried to do our best work, which we try every time, but mm-hmm. you know sometimes more successful than other times. Um, I think the the woods was far enough behind us to where we weren't feeling any sort of you know, pressure to, to play one way or another in reaction to the most recent record, which is often the case, you're kind of come off a record and try to go in a different direction. I think we felt almost, you know, like starting over in a way and we had, um, we had more, uh, more choices and we could sort of express ourselves, um, in a current and kind of natural way. So the songs that came out of us, I think, you know, they didn't feel so much a reaction to the woods. They felt more, um, you know, really anchored in the moment.
0: Corin, was a degree of difficulty on making this record because, again, sort of the legacy thing. We actually interviewed Frank Black, a.k.a. Black Francis, in the show a few years ago, and at that point, the Pixies had been doing years and years of reunion shows and no new material. And he goes, you know, and he kind of was really open about it. I'm, I'm a little scared about doing something because he didn't think, you know, there's just no way we're going to live up to, you know, what we've done before, so how do you overcome that as a band? Because you, you you obviously had something had set a bar for yourself.
3: I mean, I think all three of us were just, we just opened the door fully before we started writing, you know? And, like, we all went into it ready to try anything. Like, I think Carrie's, the way she was talking about um, being open to each other's ideas and each other's criticism, too, kind of that really helped us weed through a lot of different ideas, you know, that that we were willing to hear. Like, I don't think that chorus is is fully baked, or I don't think this. I don't think the song really, you know, belongs on the record. I mean, I think that we all went in willing to work extra hard to make something that we were proud of.
0: You, you probably are aware of it now, but I'm wondering if you were aware of it in the process. The intensity of this record is really high, which was not unexpected but no ballads. I mean, it just hits you in the face right from the start and pretty much doesn't let up. Um, Was that that just the way it came out, or was that like a statement of purpose? We're we're coming out, you know, we're throwing haymakers right, right from the start.
3: I think that's what we wanted. I mean, we had, you know, several other songs. We tried some different ideas. We did try something that was almost a slow song, but it just didn't feel... It didn't feel desperate enough to express how we felt about this band, you know, how, you know, the, the emotions that are tied up with this band are so much bigger than just the three of us, you know, and so I think that we, we, we weren't satisfied with the configurations until it was kind of a whammy of a record.
0: It's been a real pleasure having Slater Kinney in the studio today. Guys, thanks so much for coming in.
4: Thanks
2: for having
1: us. Yeah, thank, thank you. To watch video of Slater Kinney's entire performance, including bonus songs not heard during the broadcast, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. Was the new Slater Kinney record worth the wait? What about the live shows? And who's another band you'd like to see come back from hiatus? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, a review of the new album from Death Cab for Cutie. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is the song Black Sun from the new album by Death Cab for Cutie, the eighth of that group's career. The record, Greg, is called Kintsugi, which is a Japanese art form that involves fixing broken pottery with fancy gold leaf. That'll make sense in a minute. First, a little background on Death Cab for Cutie. I think, along with the Decemberists and Modest Mouse, also from the Pacific Northwest, the most successful band of the post-alternative era in terms of rising from the indie underground to selling out places like Madison Square Garden. No two ways about it. Originally a solo project by guitarist-vocalist Ben Gibbard, formed in the Bayside College town of Bellingham, Washington, The group grew as each album came out. Eventually, transatlanticism really put them on the map. 2003, they were Seth's favorite band on the OC (laughs) all over the soundtrack of that show. Got bigger and bigger as they progressed. They were guests on Sound Opinions in 2008 when they were touring behind Narrow Stairs. But they haven't been heard from since 2011. The last album was Codes and Keys. Members of the group have done lots of other things, in particular Gibbard, who I think you could argue is almost as well-loved for his other band, the Postal Service, as he is for Death Cab for Cutie. Now Death Cab for Cutie is back. Gibbard has weathered some changes in his life. He had a three-year marriage to Zoe Deschanel. There's a lot of talk about that on this album. There's also talk about him splitting with the main man in Death Cab for Cutie from the beginning, along with him, Chris Walla, who previously produced all the albums. He plays on this record, but in the middle of making it, he said he was going to be leaving the band, and for the first time, the group is working with an outside producer. Let's hear a song from the record, and we'll come back and we'll give our reviews. This is Ingenue by Death Cab for Cutie from Kinsugi on Sound Opinions.
0: That is Ingenue from the new Death Cab for Cutie album, Kintsugi. Ben Gibbard in bittersweet mode there. A little bit bitter, more bitter than sweet, I would say. Well, who do you think the Ingenue is? Yes. Well, you mentioned the breakup with Zoe Deschanel, and I, I think that's the main theme in this record, without a doubt. I mean, he has been upfront about that in interviews since the record has come out, so I don't think it's any big secret that this record is basically about that relationship, And for me, Jim, you know, the turmoil within the band, you know, Wall is sort of basically stepping out at the end of it, makes this feel more and more like a solo album rather than a Death Cab for Cutie band album. The band is very submerged in this recording. They play a vital role, but they're really not as upfront as Gibbert is with his vocals and melodies. It's very much about him, very much about his relationship with his former wife. Costi, the new producer, really doesn't take it too big of a role in steering their sound in one direction or another. I hear a little bit of a link to the Postal Service's electronics emerging with the formerly guitar-based Death Cab for Cutie sound. A lot more keyboards on this le- on this record as opposed to guitar playing. The one thing that it had the potential to be was very self-pitying, very melodramatic. It's none of those things. Gibbard sings with a lot of restraint. The melodies are strong. But I think it's a transitional album in a lot of ways. You know, there are are some insights into this relationship. But I feel like Death Cab is moving on. Gibbard had to get this record out of his system. And we'll see what the new Death Cab for Cutie is on the next record.
1: You know, as a result, I don't think it's as strong as their best work. It's a try-it record for me. I think I like it a lot more than you do, Greg. I I wouldn't want to listen to this 24-7 or every day of the week, right? But all of us have our death cab for cutie moments, right, where we're feeling (laughs) just a little melancholy. Nobody does melancholy better than Ben Gibbard. I think your distinctions there are far too fine. This started as a solo project. It's always been a solo project. Chris Walla, very, very, very valuable sideman, but it's always been all about Gibbard. Now, he started bringing in the Postal Service uh, keyboard-heavy stuff with Narrow Stairs, more electronics. The last album, even more so here, but I just think it's another fine collection of songs of him being wondering about his, his place in life, wondering about the nature of romance. I just love this line, How could something so fair be so cruel. There's no venom there. You know, he's not dissing Zoe Deschanel. He's wondering about where he failed. He's wondering about, you know, what is love and what is a relationship. I mean, who among us has not been there? I like this album quite a bit. It's a buy it for me. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to
0: look at artists who were in famous
1: rock bands and ended up doing solo records and play some of our favorites. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Special thanks to Mary Gaffney, Adam Yaffe, and Andrew Gill for the Slater-Kinney session. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lin, Evan Chung, and our intern Alex Claiborne.
2: I got an anonymous phone call from someone last night And a voice soft and low said, listen here, friend Your girl's going out with some other guy And I think
0: you should know know." On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic so give us a call on our hotline no,
2: no, 888-859-1800. Below your life. she's making a fool of you. New messages. I hung up the phone and I went to This is Michael McCarville from Austin, Texas. I was just calling regarding the Hal Blaine show. I grew up listening to a lot of the Beach Boys because of my grandpa, especially Pet Sounds. So Kind of broke my heart to hear that it wasn't the Beach Boys actually playing on that album at all.
0: We're having a little, the, the, the drum thing seems to be a little inconsistent in
5: those diddle 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 Move in on that B, that very low B when the trombones slide. Yeah, can you move in uh, for that B? Okay. Just blow your guts
2: out. <laughs> all right, here we go. Take four. Thanks for uh, the update, and I'm definitely going to be looking more into the wrecking crew a lot. Bye. Hello, my name is Karen Morby. I just listened to the show about the Wrecking Crew. Thank you. Thank you so much for maybe the best half hour of the last 66 years. That was my music. And I knew it wasn't those guys playing. Now I know who it was. Thank you. Thank you. That was amazing. Bye. Bye. Hi Jim and Greg, this is
0: Julian from outside of Norristown, Pennsylvania. I'm calling about Wolf Alice. Not so much the band as their name. I recognize really quickly that they actually take their name from a short story by one of my favorite authors, Angela Carter, specifically the last story in her cult classic collection of gothic short stories and fairy tale adaptations, *The Bloody Chamber*, from 1979 sort of appropriate that in the Year of the Woman, as you put it, a band would take their name from a late, great feminist novelist and short story writer, such as Carter.
1: Anyway, you know, don't let
0: the werewolves fight. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is John from Downers Grove. Sometimes you guys say things that irritate the heck out of me, and I rake you over the coals in a telephone comment that, of course, you never air. But today, Greg, you have put yourself up on a pedestal with me by mentioning the Roach Sisters and Losing True with Robert Fripp. time I listen to that song, other than listening to it today on the show, I, I, I haven't been able to listen to it without crying. It's so wonderful. If there's a God, if the phrase touched by the hand of God means anything, then the roaches and Fripp were touched by the hand of God when they did that song. Whatever your bad you know, mistakes in the past are, you certainly have redeemed yourself by uh, naming this song as one of your desert island jukebox selections. Bless you. Keep
2: up the good work. Thanks.